0: Good morning everybody. Good morning. It's good to see everybody here. Um, For those of you who haven't been with us for the past few weeks, uh, we recently started a series called the Covenant, Covenant Covenant, Covenant Affirmations and this is our third week and today we'll be going over the commitment to the whole mission of the church. Basically, what this series is going to be is seven different points of our faith as Cornerstone Church as we are a part of the larger body of the Evangelical Covenant Church, our denomination. And today, again, I'll repeat, we'll be going over the commitment to the whole mission of the church. Um, But before we begin, I'd like to just read the text together that we're going to be uh, hearing the word out of this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew 25, verses 31. If not, you could also read along with us on the screen. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. They will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you welcome us. And Lord, like the song that we just sang together, as our prayer, you revive us. So Father, I pray that your word would come in power this morning. We believe as a church that your word uh, never comes back empty-handed, that whatever it goes out to accomplish, it does. And so we rest in your sovereignty and your plan this morning for the work that you are about to do. And we pray, give all glory, honor, and praise to you, O oh God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In about early January, uh, the staff here at Cornerstone, the leadership team, went on away on a retreat up into New Hampshire. And basically, it was a time for us to just give us each other updates, figure out what's going on, um, just have fun together, build our relationships. And on the way back, the staff, we came back early. We were in Eugene's minivan coming back, and we had a, a really good time sharing our quirks, our OCD, a little idiosyncrasies, I won't tell you who said what, but one guy was like, yeah, I hate it when people squeeze toothpaste from the middle of the tube. And I was like, yeah, yeah, me too, that's not weird. He's like, no, but I don't like it because it mixes the colors of the toothpaste. It's like, that is weird, right? Another guy, and I'm sure a lot of you college students are gonna relate to this. He was like, okay, how many college students here, when you highlight, when you make a perfect line, you feel like a boss, right? You're like, mmm, yes. This guy used to use a ruler. Because he cared so much about how straight his highlighting lines were. The last one, again, I won't say who it is. He's like, man, I'm not a, I am not aii do I'm not obsessed with things being where they are, but my kids, they leave their socks all around the house. I hate it. It drives me crazy. You don't know who that is, right? Uh, but he, he was just complaining. And so, and I, and I actually forgot to share the one that I always wanted to share with you guys this morning. So I hate pockets. I hate, like, I wish that mercies were, Sexual are like okay for guys for the opposite sex, because I hate pockets. I hate carrying things. And there was this one summer, um, this had to be like six, seven years ago, where my friends and I, were, we were just eaten lunch in the middle of the city, we were paying and walking out, and I was wearing basketball shorts. That's the worst, because sometimes they don't have pockets at all, so you have to carry everything. And this is back when people used to use a thing called cash at restaurants, and so I got change back, and so I 'm carrying my wallet. Uh, my phone, my keys, and 13 cents, a dime and three pennies. And I'm walking. What in the world am I supposed to do with this stuff? Or should I go back to my car? You know in uh, TV shows where the main character has a monologue in their brain, but all the people around are making noise? Like, this is what's going on. So I'm thinking, I 13 cents. I was like, should I go back? And all that, I'm like, you're yapping. And so I don't know what led me to do this. But basically, I was just like, whatever. So I took the 13 cents and I tossed it right on the street. Without a blink of an eye, one of my friends who was walking with me, who wasn't even paying attention, I wasn't even talking to them, this girl zooms down, snatches up all 13 cents really quickly before it rolls under uh, a car or into incoming traffic. And instantly she looks up at me with this like piercing stare. And she says, this money may not be important to you, but it may be to someone else. Now, I learned two important things about myself that at that moment, six, seven years ago, that stuck with me. And ever since seminary, whenever people say sentences, I have to piece them up into sections. First, she said, this money may not be important to you. And so immediately, I go home and I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with, okay, what just happened? I'm realizing that I completely disregarded and misunderstand my place of privilege and of wealth here. That what thirteen cents to me was literally became an inconvenience to some people around this world is a riches. To some people of the world what people work a whole day's worth for. And secondly, she said, but it might be to someone else. And I realized how individualistic I had become. That my actions were for me, about me, and they only matter to me and not to anybody else. But surely they do. Surely our actions do matter. What I learned from that moment, from just hating, th- having to carry things and throwing it off, I feel like it's very um, illustrative of, the w- of what the Western church, what all of us struggle with today. One, misunderstanding our place of privilege, but secondly, being thickly individualistic to the point that our actions in our lives are disconnected from those around us. Today, again, we're going to be talking about the mission of the church And we're going to be reading this text and getting something out of this to tell us what that means and combating that and hopefully ending up in a place in which we understand love and sacrifice to be what we're about. So let's go back to the text. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from goats. And He will place the sheep on His right. And the goats on his left. This text comes at what is called at the end of what is called the eschatological discourse in Matthew, meaning the discourse of the end times. So clearly we see that right off the bat, right? Scholars talk about how this text, not only these three verses, but the whole passage, is one of the most blunt and clear passages in all of Scripture. So there really isn't many like things of symbolism, like, oh, what do we have to figure out? It's clear Son of Man comes in his glory, it's the end of times. The angels with him, he's seated before his throne, he has the nations before him to judge. A lot of your Bibles may have a a heading above this text that says final judgment. And that's what it is. It's a picture of Jesus coming in his glory and saying, these are my people and these are not. But one thing that does, is a little bit weird, it's like, why sheep and goats? Wouldn't it be a lot easier for us to read this text if it said Christians and non-Christians, saints and sinners, believers, unbelievers good people, bad people. The thing is, uh, this would have been very appropriate for the original audience, but for us, it's a little bit strange. I'm sure there's no shepherding majors here or anybody who has or is in that, I don't know, vocation of shepherding. But to separate sheep and goats is actually very common. Every nighttime, shepherds would do that because sheep actually like to sleep with lots of space because they have a lot of, uh, their coats are thick so they need that space to kind of cool down, whereas goats, they barely have anything, and so they actually huddle together for warmth. And So this imagery, and sheep are actually also much more valuable than goats. So clearly we see why Jesus is using sheep and goats as an illustration for his people to listen, and how that clear idea of separation is something that they are used to, and sheep being the prized possession. Let's continue. (laughs) Then the king will say to those on his right, come. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now, isn't this a strange reaction? As I'm reading through this text, I'm thinking, why don't they know why they're saved? Why are they welcomed into eternal life? Why they're accepted? Why they're placed on the right hand of God? It's really interesting. Let's look at verse 40. At the end of it, it says... As, uh, and the kings will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. This word brothers has actually uh, really made a lot of um, scholars kind of wrestle over the interpretation of this text. So clearly, this is about uh, social justice, mercy, giving to the needy in one way or another, right? Because, you know, visiting the sick, giving clothing to the naked, etc. But who's the brothers? Is this about everybody? The Bible does talk about how we should love everybody. It doesn't matter their religious faith. If you are a Christian, regardless of who they are, you are to love them and to give compassion. But nowhere else in Matthew does he ever use the brother in a, the word brothers in an um, inclusive, holistic sense. It's always the church, the people of God. And what's even more profound as that is that, okay, so we acknowledge brothers to be the people of God, and Jesus identifies them so, with them so closely to the point that he says when we do acts of love and sacrifice to them that it's as if we had done it to him. Is that not a profound uh, shift in the way that you look at one another? We say that we want to devote our lives to Jesus and to God, that I'll do anything for you, and we'll worship you, and we sing songs as, I'm going to go and do this, and I'll give my life to you, I offer my life to you, I am a living sacrifice, I surrender all. And yet we become kind of closed into our little cocoon when clearly this text speaks about the people seated next to you and your acts of love or your, the lack thereof is directly re- related to the relationship you have with Christ. So who are these people? Who who are the brothers? My, my immediate thoughts go to the missionaries around the world who are asking for support, who are just struggling to get by. For the, for the pastors that you know around the world who have a 10-person church and can barely feed their kids. For the, for the single moms who may be struggling. For the people who are seated right next to you. In this past half year, I've received more emails than ever of people struggling with real real things. And you are, a lot of you are seated and listening to me right now. Are we loving and sacrificing for the brothers and sisters, for God's people? Let's continue. Oh, well, that's brothers. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you curse into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. We can see that initially right off the bat is that the two words that Jesus uses, the first word he says is first he says, come, in that command. And right after to the, to, the, to the goats he says, depart. You curse into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? Or stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you. Then he will answer them, saying, "Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life." Now this text isn't preaching uh, works righteousness. That if you meet these needs and you gotta go home and do it quickly, or you're going to hell. That's not what it's about. We believe in justification through by through, by faith through grace. And, but what it is saying, and what it does act as a, a wake-up call to a lot of us is, Do we are we moved in this way? Do we have concern for these people? Does your heart beat with compassion? Because if it doesn't, then I think this text does say something about the way that your faith is and what you need to work out. This isn't a checkpoint and a list of things that you must do today when you get home, but it is uh, encompassing and representative of all human needs. So let's walk through these. First, I was hungry and you gave me no food, thirsty and gave me no drink. Clearly, these are just simply the most basic of human needs. I, don't, I didn't write this in my manuscript, but one thought that just came to my brain is one, in my, one of my classes this past week, a professor was talking about how a, a group who was really popular that does studies on churches um, found some while ago that if every Christian in this, not the world, the United States tithed, if every Christian tithed, that it would be something like $4 billion, in Amer- poverty in America would disappear. You can get rid of all the secular... Uh, um, uh, uh, Organizations that that feed the hungry, the church could do it like that. Are we meeting even the most basic necessities of the brothers and sisters, of the sheep of God? The one whom he gave his life for, do you give your life for them as well? Let's continue. And I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. These can be paired up into hospitality. A lot of times when we understand hospitality, we think of when the worship leader stands up and says, shake the person on your hand. You're like, okay, I'm hospitable today because I said hi to two people, not just one. And I, in fact, I did meet a new person. I went out of my way. Hospitality is so much more than inviting someone over your house for pizza. Hospitality is a... complete lowering of oneself and embrace of the other. That, friends, has no boundaries. Basically, you take yourself out of the picture in order that the other could be filled. Third, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. In the ancient times, for people who were sick, a lot of times, the whole community, even though they were close-knit, when you were sick or severely ill, nobody would know. The reason being is because they would be isolated, kind of quarantined, right? I remember when the... uh, What was it? What was that thing that went around on college campuses a few years ago? Swine flu. When swine flu ran around, we were just quarantining students left and right, like nobody wants to be around. It was kind of like that. So nobody would know. So basically... How do you get help? For us, we walk around and we can just go to CVS. Ever since we're born, we get immunizations and shots so that we can fight off disease. If we're going to go on a mission trip, we go straight to the doctor and ask them, "Hey, what do I have to do to stay healthy overseas?" Buy some cough drops, whatever. It takes Tylenol to get rid of the headache. But for them, a simple cold for us, for them, could have meant death. You're lying on your deathbed. And they were in complete isolation. And so the only people who could help them were who? Visitors. People who would actually place themselves into a place of potential risk. And they could die because they went to help somebody else. This is what Jesus is talking about in terms of visiting the sick. Not bringing chicken soup to your friends. But loving them so much so that you are willing to die. Literally to die in order to help them. Last week, Eugene talked a little bit about what prisons were like in the ancient world. And I want to go a little bit further into it, that they were small, cramped little places. They were, oftentimes, they were chained to the walls, and their positions would be shifted based upon the whim of the guard in order to increase discomfort. When we think about prisons, right, the first thing that comes to my mind is a big courtyard with guards walking around with guns just watching. Some dudes over on the corner, bench pressing, and the other guys playing basketball. Guys just kind of like, you know, sitting around, like throwing rocks and stuff. I, I think of Shawshank Redemption, and Morgan Freeman's space comes to my brain. I've been working on my Morgan Freeman impression. You can hear it later if you ask me. But that's why it just comes to my mind. Uh, and that's what we think of, right? We think of, you get a TV if you're on your best behavior, on your, like 10 years into your sentence. Prison, you were chained. There was nothing but just rock space, No toilets. So basically, they would literally just be living and dying in their filth. We also think of, you know, in a nice prison, them walking in a cafeteria and getting food and being like, oh, who should I sit with? And you know how you have to sit with the people who committed the same crimes as you? Or, Or we think of maybe the more ghetto ones, like just sliding a piece of bread under the door, or like in the movies. The only thing guaranteed for ancient prisoners was a roof over their head one of the things that was least common that they would receive is food. The only way they would get food was from visitors. So church, as we read this text and as we see that word visit, let us not downplay what this call is for us. The, word, the verb to visit and the word noun visitor is nothing like what we're used to. It is a person who was just so, uh, just undone and, and covered in their love and sacrifice, that they go. There's a Greek word that was nicknamed for the church in the first century. The word is called is parabolousamenos. It's a cool word, right? It's pretty long. Anyways, this word was is a nickname used for Christians for the early church of the Christians who would go around helping sick people and who would die because of it. So basically what they would do is that they would go around, help sick people, they would catch that person's sickness, and then they would die. This word literally, it means life riskers. So, in the early church, the outside world looked upon the Christians, looked upon the church, and nicknamed them the life riskers. Is, it not, is that not beautiful? That the world would look upon the people of God and say, those are the ones who literally give everything. How does the world see us today? Homophobic, judgmental, greedy, rich. How beautiful is that sight? And how beautiful would it be to see our church be nicknamed life riskers? And maybe it's never going to be to that extreme because of the technology and the good health care we have today. But in which ways do you risk your life or your time or your money or your energy? How much are you willing to put aside in order to benefit the brother or sister? The church is strengthened when the people of God love and sacrifice for one another. And when the church gets strengthened and when the church gets edified, then they are enabled and strengthened to go and sacrifice outside the church. One commentator says the church is able to fulfill its mission, its mission, right? Externally, when it is in peace through sacrifice and love internally. Again, the church is able to fulfill its mission externally. When it is in peace through sacrifice and love internally. And this is what I want to direct our attention to as our mission today. To increase worship. Our mission of the church is to increase worship through the expansion of the kingdom of God. And how do we do that? How does the church do that? We do that by proclaiming the gospel and carrying love and sacrifice. I've repeated those words, love and sacrifice, a million times today. And I'm doing it on purpose because I hope that that is what is ingrained in us and is written on our hearts, that as we bear that title of Christ's sheep, that we would be the ones carrying love and sacrifice and expanding the kingdom of God, being taking part in the mission. And so for application, I don't have a list of uh, points. I, I have a simple thing to say. It's one point, but may split up into little three. One, like Eugene mentioned last week, open your Bibles. This is my challenge to you. Two, read about who Jesus of Nazareth was. And if you conclude that he is your savior, three, imitate him. My simple application point in our call for the church, be like Christ. I look upon, and, and I look upon the life of Jesus, and instantly from his birth, he, he is fully God, yet he bears Humility so much so to take on flesh, to become man. He's born into a manger, a feeding trough. He lives his whole life in poverty, and then he dies, and even what the two things, his staff and his robe, all that he had is taken from him. So he literally lived his life with nothing, left with nothing, and yet even he gave everything. Can we... As the little Christs, the Christians bear a Christ likeness by the way that we conduct ourselves, by the way that we speak, think, act, give. One of the things, uh, every time I get a chance, I I pretty much love going over the same thing again because if I'm given the opportunity to speak to one person or to a couple hundred, I love the gospel message. Because one, it convicts us, it tells us that something's going on that needs to change. Two, it challenges us, saying that my life is, I've been doing something wrong and I need to repent. But third, and most importantly, in which I exhort to you, it empowers us. That you don't need to hear from me how to go home and become a sacrificial person. But what you need to do is preach the gospel and remind yourself of the truth of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, and allow that to be the empowering spirit that turns you into a life risker. Right? That when the gospel takes root in your soul, that you just become new. When recognizing what Christ has done for you, then you are fully able to just let go of all the crap that we hold on to and give. So church, I just want to um, say just to ask and to exhort you all to just look and fix your eyes upon the Savior this morning and as you're at your workplaces as you're in your classrooms, in your schools, in your dorms, and allow that example that he showed perfectly be what challenges you to bear in that same likeness, to become like Jesus. The more that the church becomes like Jesus, the more we start loving and sacrificing internally, enabling us to love and sacrifice externally, and for our mission of the church to be fulfilled. Your mission, my mission, I'm going to close if you, if you, by reading a passage in Scripture. And because it is its authority, uh, I'll, I'm just going to let it speak for itself as our conclusion. Um, if, you're, if you haven't been with me, please pay attention now, and let's really submit ourselves under the Word and uh, allow it to minister to us. So please read along with me. Let's gather all of our attention in 1 John 3, verses 16 through 24. This is the word of God. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth, and we are sure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And that is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. For whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Let's pray together. Jesus, we want to do one simple thing this morning and to turn our eyes and to fix them upon you. To turn our heart and to fix them upon you that our gaze would just be fixed upon you. We pray that you would minister to us by showing us more of who you are and urging us and empowering us to become more like you. Heavenly Father, my prayer over Cornerstone is that the world would see us and not praise us, not thank us even, not give us encouragement even. We need none of that but we want the world to see us and to praise you. We want the world to see us, and for that to increase worship. We want our lives to be so exemplary that people know that God is good. And even with the mess in this world, that Jesus Christ is king. So Father, empower us by the working of your spirit through the procl- proclamation of the gospel, to further your kingdom, to increase worship, to join with all the churches in this world to fulfill the mission. Teach us more about what it means to love and to sacrifice. We love you. We're so thankful for the example that you showed and for the ways that you've given it straight to us into our lives, that we have been recipients of this grace. We have been recipients of this kindness. And I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ, with the working and the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would transform us in this way and that we would be ones to give and to do the same. So we give you all glory, honor, and praise. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.